Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my 100th episode of Nothing Off Limits. I am so excited. You know, when I started thinking, who is going to be my special guest for this milestone occasion? It honestly didn't take me that long for me to decide. There was one particular show which stood out from the other 99. It was my highest downloaded ever. And I got a lot of feedback on it. I got a ton of emails that came in from listeners. And they swung between utter fascination to shock and disbelief of what they learned, to push back from other people. As a matter of fact, one person even sent me a message very simply saying, fuck you. <laughs> I received no explanation on the comment, but my guess was that they were too afraid to listen and it pissed them off. Well, Regardless, I am excited and super pleased to dive deeper and expand on the last conversation that I had with today's remarkable guest, the wildly informative author, blogger, and psychopath, H.G. Tudor. Welcome back, H.G. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. It's so good to have you. You know, people went nuts for your last episode, and I, I imagine you're used to that kind of mixed response. Absolutely. And of course... It's a response that, that um, one would always look for. Um, if there is no response, that's hugely disappointing, to put it mildly, mm -hmm. and there's wounding. So any response that occurs is what my kind always want. Right. I often say, love me, hate me, but never ignore me. <laughs> and uh, even with the uh, reaction of fuck you, um, that's a little dollop of fuel to our kind. So uh, that's fine. And one would expect that response as well from certain people. So right. entirely understandable. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I got so many emails from people saying that they are now identifying everyone around them as either a lesser, a mid-ranger. Mm -hmm. Some people mistakenly thought that they had graders and then they were like, wait, now that I'm listening to more of the episode, I think this person's actually just a mid-ranger, but I'm not sure. And so people are just so fascinated. It's useful to obviously stimulate uh, people to assess uh, those around them in that way. And it is interesting also in that many people do automatically assume that they've been ensnared by a greater, such as the impact that it has on them. Um, but greaters are a rare breed indeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, more often than not, when people uh, consult with me, many start off with, I've, I've been ensnared by a greater HG. And as we talk, it, invariably there's more than likely mid-range right right makes total sense rare everybody now i want to remind the people out there listening that if you haven't listened to the first episode with hg please do so i think it was number 89 released on september 3rd of this year listen first because hg shares a lot of the basics that we're going to be blowing past today like the different types of narcissists that we were just chatting about as well as their categories and the typical pattern of a narcissistic relationship the golden period devaluation, disengagement, Hoover, etc. So I encourage you, please listen to that so that you can kind of latch on to today's conversation a little more easily. So with that said, HG, let's dive in. 
Okay. Now, you mentioned that one of the most common questions that you get from the people you consult, um, your readers, listeners, fans, surround the Hoover. So I want to start with that and tell us what the types of Hoovers are, because there are tons of them, as well as how they happen. Okay. There are many different types of Hoover through the narcissistic dynamic. Seduction is a Hoover because we're drawing you into our world to begin with. Uh, When we devalue you, we draw you back in by way of manipulations. So you may try and stay away from us from a period of time, even though the relationship is ongoing. But the Hoovers that attract the most attention invariably follow the uh, cessation of the relationship between narcissist and victim. So where you have a situation where you may well have escaped us and you might have worked out that you were ensnared with a narcissist, but usually it's the case the victim realizes that the uh, behavior is abusive, that it can't go on, that things aren't going to change, and they depart. We will, because we regard you as our property, uh, prevent that from happening as far as we possibly can. If you happen to tip us off, so for example, you decide that you're going to sit down with us and say, it's over, and here's why, you will then be subjected to what is known as a preventative hoover, which, as the name suggests, is all about preventing you from achieving your stated aim of escaping us. And the simple fact is, if you decide that you want to end the relationship with a narcissist, don't tell us. Don't tip us off (laughs) because we will stop you from doing it. Mm -hmm. A lesser narcissist will use violence to stop you, uh, intimidation. We'll find out where you are and look to drag you back screaming and kicking because you belong to him. The mid-ranger will begin with a preventative hoover with some charm but largely pity play. And the repeated cry of mea culpa, I'm sorry, uh, I didn't realize what I was doing, or I could tell you were upset, but I didn't realize it was as bad as this. Mm-hmm. I'll do anything uh, to make things right. I'll go to therapy. I can change all of these comments. Yeah. And the greater will just use charm and explain, oh, I think you're mistaken in terms of what you've seen there. It didn't really happen like that. And look, why don't we forget about all of this and uh, book a holiday? and uh, go and do something good together and use charm. So there are a variety of means of trying to prevent that uh, person from escaping us. If your resistance is high and you maintain your escape or you didn't tip us off, then there is no preventive hoover or it has failed. So the next thing that you will be subjected to post-escape is what's known as the initial grand hoover and this is a blitzkrieg of activity by the narcissist which is designed to suck you back in as quickly as possible hence the name hoover (laughs) indeed and it's a frenzied attempt uh, for the most part because invariably um, most people who are hoovered in this fashion are what are known as the intimate partner primary source so the wife the girlfriend the boyfriend And you are our primary source of fuel, the most important provider of fuel, and you may well also be the most important provider of character traits that we rely on and also residual benefits. For example, you put a roof over our head or provide an income, etc. When you decide to escape us, then you are turning off the pipeline, and this can potentially cause a fuel crisis for us. And therefore, we have to do everything we possibly can to get you back. And that will mean, uh, in a similar way to the preventative hoover, uh, 
using charm or threat or intimidation, um, all various ways to try and get you to come back to us. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be false suicide attempts. There will be false emergencies declared. There will be suggestions that there's something wrong, for example, with a, ch a child if there's sh shared uh, co-parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, it might be that we go on the offensive and send you gift after gift, turning into Santa Claus. And there are a whole raft of these power plays that we adopt as part of the initial Grand Hoover. And it's important that people are aware of the way that these will manifest, because some are obvious, some less so. And some might utilize the assistance of other people where we hoover by proxy. And all of these power plays uh, are talked about in my book, No Contact, so you can read more about them there mm -hmm. to understand them in greater detail. Now, yeah. let's assume you survive the Blitzkrieg, or it might be that we have disengaged from you. So, of course, if we have disengaged from you, we don't want you back. So you're not going to get the initial Grand Hoover. And people think, I've not heard from him for some time. Um, I got away from him. He's not tried to contact me. He did at first, but it's gone quiet. Will he hoover me? And that is the that is the hoover that traditionally people think about. And that's mm -hmm. known as the follow-up hoover. Okay. And this is what takes place either after you've escaped us or we have disengaged from you and we decide that we want to draw more fuel from you. So let's take, for example, where we have disengaged from you. Generally speaking, if we have got rid of you, it's because we found somebody else, and therefore they become the apple of our eye, our flower in bloom, the light of our life, and they have the new golden period. You are effectively deleted in our minds. We don't want anything to do with you. You let us down. You didn't provide us with the fuel that we wanted. And therefore, you actually have a period of grace whereby we will not bother with you. Of course, many victims, bewildered as to why they've been disengaged from or dumped in their parlance, will be trying to contact the narcissist to ask, why did you do this to me? I don't understand. Can you explain? If you do that, you're likely to be ignored at first, and then you will find that you will be subjected to malign hoovers. And the reason for that is we will lash out and say that you're a stalker, uh, that you're the crazy <laughs> psycho ex that won't leave us alone. <laughs> and we do that because we don't want you interfering in the golden period with our new shiny toy. Uh -huh. We want you out of the way because the innate paranoia that we have is that we are concerned that you will say something, true or otherwise, that will cause our new relationship to founder and you will basically put a crack in our new fuel pipeline. Ooh. So we want you to stay away. If you do stay away from us, then you will have this golden period for a period of usually months. It may even extend into years because we're focused elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, certain individuals may be on the receiving end of a malice campaign. And that is where, even though you do not try and contact us, we will still lash out at you because we want to punish you. It is relatively rare and it tends to happen where you've been disengaged from because you exposed us in some way, or the level of your treachery and defiance was so great that even though we found somebody new, we still want to make your life a misery. And that usually tends only to be done by graters. You might get the occasional upper mid-ranger to do it, but lessers and mid-rangers don't have the energy or inclination to keep going with it. So it'd be the grace that will engage in that. Now, 
assuming that you've stayed away from the narcissist, the narcissist has his new golden period, you might think, I have not heard from him for months. Everything's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. It isn't. There is always a risk of a hoover. And the reason for that is because of the narcissistic perspective that you belong to us until either you die or we die. Mm. And whilst we deleted you for that period of time, once we start to devalue your replacement, at that juncture, we're looking around for somebody new, fresh fuel, fresh positive fuel. And who better to turn to than the very person that we used to engage with? We invested in you, and therefore we want to continue to take from that investment. Now people will think, why on earth would you return to somebody that you quite clearly rejected? That's a valid question. Mm -hmm. fact is, because we compartmentalize and we adopt in contradictory and split thinking, is that mm -hmm. we disengage from you because we painted you black. You were no use to us anymore. But then all of a sudden, because the new person is now painted black, because they're in devaluation, you then become painted white. And it is at this juncture that you are at risk of a hoover. And essentially, there are two important factors in this. The first is, is there a hoover trigger? And I talk about what is known as the spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to contact me eight months after we split up and the new person is in devaluation, you have entered my sphere of influence and you've caused a hoover trigger. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, stay away from the narcissist. And if you do, the only way that there will be a hoover trigger is if you enter the sixth sphere of influence, which is where we just happen to think about you or something has reminded us of you, perhaps a song or a book or something like that. Mm. Now, just because there is a hoover trigger does not mean that the hoover will take place because the next thing that has to happen is that the hoover execution criteria have to be met. And this is a whole bundle of different matters. So this takes into account, do we know where you are? Do we have a telephone number or a technological way of reaching you? Did you wound us last time there was an encounter? How good was your fuel? Are you with somebody else? Is there a restraining order against us? Are there other obstacles? What type of narcissist are you dealing with? And many other factors. And all of those go into the mix and they either raise or lower the hoover bar. So take, for example, greater narcissist that lowers the hoover bar. The victim fountain with fuel lowers the hoover bar. They haven't blocked the narcissist and he has that person's telephone number. It's nailed on, you'll get a hoover because it's so easy to do. Now, the hoover execution criteria that I've mentioned is likely to be different in a situation where you have escaped because you may well have wounded us as a consequence of the way that you escaped from us. Right. Furthermore, because you escaped from us rather than we threw you to one side, you may well have embarked on a rigorous no-contact regime and therefore you have blocked us. You have deleted telephone numbers. You may have moved house and moved job, etc. And therefore, usually, when the victim has escaped us, they tend to put more effort into ensuring that it is harder for us to hoover. Whereas if you, we have disengaged from you, many people still cling on because of the impact that it's had and they don't necessarily either put any no contact in at all mm -hmm. or it's fairly weak. So when you have escaped from us, same principles apply. While we have the new primary source, we will, won't bother with you. Then when we devalue that new primary source, we're looking to hoover and we might hoover the ex before you 
dependent on the circumstances, namely, is there a Hoover trigger and is the Hoover execution criteria met? So if you're the immediate X, you are always at the greatest risk of a Hoover because you tend to be more foremost in our mind. And if there is the Hoover trigger, then we ascertain, is it easy to get hold of you? And if it is, we will Hoover. And usually those Hoovers are benign in nature. So we will send, uh, often, for example, a mid-ranger will just send you a text message, how are you? That's just dipping a toe in the water just to see what the response is. And if a favorable response comes back, I'm okay, how are you? Then the mid-ranger is encouraged by that. And then we'll Hoover again. If there is no response, they may try two or three further times and then they will they will drop off because they're not getting any response they'll be wounded by that and they're not getting any fuel so there is a whole range of criteria and people do often give me the barest of details and say Willie Hoover and I say well I need to know a lot more about the situation Mm -hmm. to give you a far more accurate analysis because there are so many variables that go into it but the simple rule is this you are always at risk of a Hoover However, there is much you can do to influence the extent of that risk. It's complex. There's so many, like you said, variables involved, and that's why somebody would need to consult with you for their specific situation. That's right. And that's also why I think so many people just miss it. They don't understand narcissists and Mm -hmm. how they operate because there are so many different variables, and that's why it's an interesting topic. That's right. And many people will contact me and say, this has happened. Is this a Hoover? Well, essentially... If a narcissist has contacted you post your engagement with them, and it might be sending you a postcard from where they are on holiday, it may be a gift turning up. Sometimes it's passive hoovers, whereby the narcissist will post things on his social media in the expectation that the victim will read it, Mm. but doesn't know for sure that they have. Right. And so you will have passive hoovers uh, in that way, so that... um, remarks are made which appear cryptic to everybody else but the victim knows that they're being spoken about or referred Mm -hmm. to by the post that appears Uh, (laughs) you will have instances whereby uh, driving past somebody's house that's a hoover Uh, stalking of course is hoovering Uh, sending flowers to your workplace that's a hoover getting a friend to ask how you are is a hoover what are some hoovers that you've employed very wide range i've done uh things such as uh, the simple ones which are getting hold of a person's telephone number and invariably i will ring them and they're caught off guard so in those circumstances and i'm invariably pleasant to them and a lot of the time they're wanting answers or they feel a need to at least be uh civil and then the application of charm and soon talk them round. i've hoovered individuals by bombarding them with gifts Um, I don't engage in false suicide calls. I regard that as beneath me. I don't utilize pity plays uh, for the purposes of hoovering again. That's beneath me. I tend to use grand gestures. I've sent invitations to prestige events uh, and know that that person will respond to it. And I know that they will turn up because I know uh, that individual so well that they can't resist being invited (laughs) to a particular race meeting or uh, a yachting event, for example. Mm -hmm. So. Well, yeah, I'll go to a yachting event with you. Well, there we are. You see, I'm already. <laughs> I'll just make a note now, Michelle. That that's, that's how I'll hoover you in due course. So. Right. <laughs> so, I was laughing uh, with some friends, by the way. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I, everybody sort of likes HG, <laughs> but yet is scared of you. And I was like, well, now that I know exactly what he's doing, like we could hang out. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, 
you always do so at your risk and it's right. uh, always worthwhile remi- reminding yourself as to what I am. Yeah. Indeed, if you engage with me as a non-intimate secondary source for the most part, you're right. into an elongated golden period. Right. There's no real reason for me to devalue you because your fuel doesn't run stale because I don't interact with you uh, regularly. And right. Indeed, I have long-standing uh, non-intimate secondary sources, friends by another description uh, that I've had for years. And yes, they will say that they know that I have an edge to me, but um, <laughs> they also recognize that uh, they enjoy spending time with me and they've never suffered any untoward behavior. Right. They've always been uh, painted white. They've always been compliant in terms of addressing the needs that I have. Mm-hmm. And speaking to that, those mm-hmm. friends, those non-intimate secondary sources, they can be used in ways by a narcissist to make the primary source feel like they are insane for thinking that there's something off about this person. Indeed. Um, lieutenants are drawn from non-intimate secondary sources. And the left the, and the coterie, which is a broader range of those from non-intimate secondary sources, which includes friends and family and colleagues, they're all used as part of the facade. So I portray myself uh, as a decent human being uh, that uh, is successful in my work, engaging, uh, great to have at dinner parties, uh, assists with certain charitable uh, events, and therefore I'm well thought of. And therefore, when the intimate partner primary source is being devalued and runs to these people to say, HG is treating me this way, there'll be those who just will not accept it because all they've ever seen is the good side of me and will respond with, are you really sure? That doesn't sound like the HG I know. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be others who are my lieutenants who have been specifically briefed beforehand because I will get in first that this individual is a lunatic and therefore <laughs> because they are so um uh, on my, so on my side so ingrained uh, with my uh, philosophy they know that this is coming and they will actively go out of their way to assist me in the manipulation yes. of that individual those lieutenants also are those that are utilized in the in hoovers for example i have in the past with certain hoovers arrange for my lieutenants to arrange a date with the previous uh, IPPS, uh, a lieutenant who she did not know, and she thinks that she's going on a date, and he pumps her for information, which is then fed back to me, which I can then utilize for the purposes of my own follow-up hoover in person. Wow, be careful who you go on a date with after ending a relationship with a narcissist. Absolutely. But what you were talking about with the lieutenant is really interesting. That's exactly what happened to me. I actually went to a close friend and said, yeah, I kind of confided for a moment and just said, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned. There's like some major mood swings happening, happening here, and I'm not sure what that's all about. Mm-hmm. And the answer was immediate and was, well, you're just going to have to deal with that. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not going to be making friends with this one, you know, and Absolutely. that person came into play many other times too. It was very interesting. Yes. Um, so I see how that works. Now, this leads me to talking about triangulation because yes. that person was also part of um, one of many triangles that were formed in my experience, but there were ones that were more potent in terms of them being other women. So let's talk about triangulation, explain the concept of it and why it happens. Okay. Uh, triangulation 
is where you, as the victim, are manipulated as a consequence of our behavior or reference to a third party, be it a person or even an object. And in terms of objects with triangulation, the biggest one we use is the mobile telephone. So when <laughs> you are sat in the living room with us and we are prodding our phone for hour after hour, not only are we orchestrating our empire of fuel gathering and looking at new prospects and getting messages from friends and so on and so forth, we're deliberately doing it because we're effectively giving you an absent silent treatment because we're not responding to you. We may, uh, we don't answer what you're asking us. And of course, we know you're thinking, what's he doing? Who's mm -hmm. he texting? Who's he messaging? So that's a very simple form of triangulation. Which could easily make you look like the crazy girl or the Absolutely. crazy guy. If you're like, what are you that's doing? Right. Who are you talking to? And of course, with so much of what we do, there is always plausible deniability attached to it. Uh, the subtlety that goes with it so that we can always say, I was just dealing with some work emails. Why? What's the matter? And then, of course, we'll turn it around into, you know that I have to do uh, this job and it means that occasionally I'll have to deal with emails out of hours. Who do you think pays for all of this around us? You're so ungrateful. Why can't you ever appreciate what I do for you? And immediately into the blame shifting and then you're forced onto the back foot and mm -hmm. then you get upset and you provide fuel and you're forced to apologize. So the triangulation then leads into other forms of manipulation. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest forms of triangulation revolves around involving another person. It may be that you're triangulated with a family member. So, for example, we may well stay uh, playing up to the stereotype of the dragon-like mother-in-law. We may well say that um, our mother disapproves of you, even though she doesn't, but we'll say it in order to draw a reaction from you. And then there'll be instances where we will talk about somebody that we work with, and we will say how excellent they are at what they do. And we will say just enough so that you think, he seems to be mentioning Zoe, for example, far too often. But if you challenge us about it, of course, we'll just say, I just work with her. You're obsessed. Uh, am, I not, am I not allowed to talk about my work now? Mm -hmm. Again, twist it. And so what always comes with the triangulation is a further manipulation by way of projection or blame shifting or going into a word salad, all for the purposes of exerting control. And the idea behind triangulation is to create an environment within which you do not feel secure mm -hmm. because you feel that your position is under threat. And we do it to such a bewildering degree that to begin with, the immediate ex, we've told you that she's a psycho who abused us. And then when you're in devaluation, we start saying about how she was a better lover than you and how she was a better cook than you and how she cared for us more. And you're thinking, but six months ago, you said this woman was crazy and was abusive. And then, of course, we deny we ever said it. And that why, why are you having a go at the X? Yeah. We're able to do that because of the compartmentalization that we engage in. We are hypocrites and contrarians. Mm -hmm. Yes. It uh, doesn't matter. And an important point to make there, Michelle, is that with the greater, we know that we're doing that. And it's all part of the manipulation. The lesser and the mid-ranger don't realize what they're doing because it's an instinctive response. Very difficult for people to understand that because yeah. they think, surely he must realize what he's just said. Uh, or what he said last week. No, 
it's an automatic self-defense mechanism and the way that the lesser narcissists and mid-range narcissists is configured that they believe their own lies as truth because of their differing perspective yeah which is is I can see why it's so hard for people to understand. And it was for me as well. And I was like, this is nuts. How is How does this person not see that this is going on? And I would try to logically and rationally explain it and be like, "This is these are the facts. This is what happened. This is what you said. This is what I said. And deny, 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 lie, lie, lie. And then it just became this like chaotic, wildly chaotic situation. And it made me nuts, <laughs> you yes. know? Who were you triangulated with? with a female friend and um your friend or his friend his friend mm -hmm. and i was not i was never introduced to this person mm -hmm. and so it was always kept separate and um, a lot of the blame was placed on her saying oh she keeps saying she's busy she's too busy then uh, a fight would purposely be brought up with me so that i would be off the slate and then would hang out with her mm -hmm. and it was just constant um and making a lot of references to her there were lots of pictures all over social media and it just looked wrong and everyone that i asked i said you know doesn't this look like they're a couple and they're like, yeah, absolutely. But he denied that they were ever a couple. So it just went on and on and on. And indeed, uh, social media is uh, an apt way for us to triangulate. And it's often done in a subtle way of lots of likes on a particular person's posts and pictures. And of course, to you, why, why are we excessively liking that person's posts? Why are we reading them? And of mm -hmm. course, plausible deniability. All it is is a like. What are you getting so worked up about? Exactly. There are many, many accounts that my ex-narcissist was following on Instagram and Facebook of, you know, models and strippers and um, types that were just kind of like almost inhuman. <laughs> it's like, that's not a real person. Mm -hmm. And he he often made me feel really, really silly about being bent out of shape about that. Well, indeed. And... Um Again, this uh, factors into the question of triangulation, that in certain instances, you will have two uh, people, in effect, fighting over us. So we will triangulate you with somebody who may not even exist, and we've invented them purely mm. for the purpose of messing with you. But more, more often than not, there is somebody. And that person may well know that we are in a formal relationship with somebody. But of course, you're portrayed as an abuser. And in the same way that when you met us, we talked about how the person that we were with or who we've just been with was horrible to us. We're now saying that there's very th same things to, about you. And so we're engaging with somebody and saying how you never give us any time. Oh, we effectively sleep in separate beds. It's like brother and sister now, mm. and so on and so forth. And of course, they fall for it. And uh, the empathic individual thinks, well, that's awful. And whilst they recognize that person's in a formal relationship and ordinarily their moral compass would prevent them from becoming engaged with somebody, the charm of the narcissist and also their protestations about being hurt and abused means that the desire of the empath to help that person, to heal them, overrides their moral compass so that they interfere in the relationship between narcissist and current mm -hmm. primary source. Uh, I've 
written about this on the blog web, I call it the dirty empath marriage breaker, uh, <laughs> whereby the, the empath is essentially a decent person, but just has this dirty streak in them. And one of those is uh, interfering in the relationship between two other people. Yeah. And of course, it isn't beyond the realms of possibility that the narcissist may have ensnared another narcissist unwittingly. And therefore, that individual will go hell for leather to pull the incumbent narcissist away from the empathic primary source. Yeah. I'm looking at an email from somebody who emailed in, mm -hmm. and they're asking specific questions. They're wondering, is it more prevalent in men versus women? Statistically, it's suggested that uh, the ratio is 75-25 uh, in favor of men. I don't think it's as pronounced as that. I think that um, based purely on anecdotal experience, because of course there is no governing empirical survey about this, that narcissism is more prevalent with men, but I would put it closer to 60-40. Okay. Um, I think part of it is uh, as a consequence of a number of factors. First, uh, society operates in a way whereby, whilst uh, there have been considerable strides made in equality, it's still in many places a in inverted commas, man's world. And that lends itself to the machismo and alpha male nature, which uh, is prevalent with narcissists. Secondly, there is also, because of societal influences, the idea that uh, women being uh, more empathic as a whole, more maternal, uh, more feminine, and therefore would be less prone to uh, these narcissistic traits. Mm. And then the other fact, which I think is probably the one which is um, of considerable impact is recognition of it. And if you were to look at what's the uh, proportion of male narcissists to female narcissists from those who come to my blog in terms of the victims describing their experiences, it would be 95 to 5% male to female. Mm. The bulk of my readers are female. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah. And I think what's really behind it is that male victims of female narcissists don't tend to talk about it as much, don't recognize it as mm. much, brush it off as something else, don't necessarily go down the rabbit hole to the extent that a lady would do to try and find out what it is, right. are less likely to seek out um, intervention from a therapist to get answers. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there are men that do, and many men do so. And uh, They're going to be less likely to talk about it. That's right. And so therefore, this skews the image of it um, because it, it's more the case that female victims of mm -hmm. male narcissists speak out about it more right. readily. In terms of those that I have interacted with in my family and socially and work-wise, in terms of gender uh, for narcissists, it's around about 60-40. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then the other question coming from the same uh, listener was that they were curious about the intensity of the traits of the behaviors. Do they change at all with age? Does it mellow for male menopause or female menopause? Again, the uh, intensity of the narcissistic traits that a narcissist has will vary with aging, but, again, but it depends on the school of narcissist. So, for example, a lesser narcissist is generally deluded as to his uh, abilities, how good-looking he is, how good he is at sport, and therefore, even when aged 50, thinks that he can run around at the same <laughs> rate that he could when he was 25. 
he doesn't see the paunch or the thinning hair, still wow. thinks he's that charming Lothario that wowed the women mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And so what tends to happen is, as the lesser ages, he still thinks that he's got it, and he will be the uh, older man about town, hanging around bars, picking up younger ladies. But Steve's, there's nothing wrong with that because he has a sense of entitlement. He thinks that he can still achieve an outcome and invariably will do through... So his behaviours are not going to change. So his behaviours are not going to change. And actually what tends to happen there is, as a consequence of his neglect of his health, the fact that he's going around drinking and perhaps uh, doesn't, doesn't eat well, the lesser narcissist um, doesn't reach the ripe old age because his physical health uh, brings him to his knees. Mm-hmm. But his behaviours generally don't alter. You tend to find with the mid-range narcissist that they are better equipped to an extent to deal with ageing. But what tends to happen there is that they have these moments where they see the disconnect between what they want to be and what they are. And of course, as their powers wane, their looks fade, uh, their memory is not as good as it once was, their fuel matrix, which will have been more extensive at one time, starts to shrink. Uh, And it might be, for example, that they don't have the economic prowess that they once had to rely on. Those type of things will result in the narcissist becoming ever more bitter, lashing out at closer sources around Mm. him, expecting the family to come and visit more often Mm -hmm. because the friends have drifted away. And uh, they may not be as mobile because of physical health. and Therefore, they uh, become frustrated because they can't... uh, get out to the fuel appliances in the way that they did. And they can rely on technology to an extent, but those little flashes where they are reminded of their shortcomings turns them very bitter and they become more acerbic and uh, turn on family particularly, expecting them to uh, carry them fuel-wise for a much longer period of time or they will have a much more long-suffering primary source. So they will keep somebody in devaluation for far longer because they can't acquire a replacement. So there is a Mm -hmm. long-suffering wife, for example, and they recognize the residual benefits of keeping that person there to care for them. The greater will have a more extensive fuel matrix, has looked after him or herself more extensively, has access to usually to uh, better health care, for example, Uh, still have charm, and uh, will probably look more distinguished uh, with age. Not always. Uh, Of course, there is the reliance again on certain substances and so on, which could result in being derailed. But in general terms, the greater uh, continues to be highly effective, even with aging. Mm -hmm. But the traits, or the behaviors rather, will probably stay similar with the lesser and the mid-range. But with the greater, you mentioned in the last episode that you used to love to you know, light things on fire. You were a prolific arsonist. And you said, I don't really do that as much, even though I still like it. And so is that the greater having more self-awareness and with age, you've decided not to do it more? Or what is is there a relation there? My arsonist tendencies um, were perhaps more linked to my antisocial qualities as opposed to my narcissism. And I don't engage in it as much now purely uh, because time and opportunity isn't afforded, uh, I still enjoy the occasional good burn-up. Uh, but there is also the fact of when I was younger, it was far easier to uh, avoid detection completely or pass it off as something else mm-hmm. and be believed. 
Whereas an ad- as an adult, uh, it would be a little more difficult. But a lot of it really is turned on the fact that I don't have the time and opportunity to do it as much okay. as I am. It's not about just getting older and having wisdom and perspective. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, I think it would be fair to say that if I had more time, I would probably still go around doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, so related to that, I want to talk about the fury aspect. Um, yes. We started speaking about that in the last episode, but you know, I want to I want to go a little further with it because in my experience and some of my friends' experiences, they had been threatened with things like, "I'm going to kill you if yes. you do this or that." Does that kind of fury actually come to fruition? Is that something that could actually happen, or is that just an empty threat? In terms of killing somebody. Yeah. Or I'm going to light your house on fire. Again, it depends on the school of narcissist. The lesser is more is likely to carry it out uh, because um, they have a poorer awareness of the ramifications of their actions and they have a very low control on their fury. Fury is always churning away inside of us. When you wound us, then our fury invariably ignites. And it does that for the purposes of a reaction to try and draw fuel from the person that has wounded us to then heal that wound. Now, with a lesser, he struggles to keep the lid on that fury. So when you, when you wound him, and often you'll do it inadvertently, he explodes with heated fury. So that's why you're physically attacked, you're verbally abused, mm-hmm. uh, sexually assaulted, property is destroyed. And in instances where uh, a threat is made, the lesser is likely to carry that out in the short term, but not the medium to long term, because he doesn't have the uh, energy level or presence of mind or planning to carry it out at a later juncture. So if, for example, he explodes with heated fury and shouts as uh, as he departs, I'm going to come back and burn your house down, there is a reasonable chance that he may well come back and do that that night, if he's not done it by the end of the week, it's unlikely to happen because wow. his fury will have abated. But okay. in that explosive moment, he's perfectly capable of carrying out that threat. The mid-ranger is all about threat and not action. The reason for this is a combination of, again, lower energy levels. But the mid-ranger, being passive-aggressive and essentially cowardly in nature, regards threat as a much more effective way. It's uh, low intensity in terms of the amount of effort that needs to be expended. And they recognize the effectiveness in having it hovering over that individual. Because, of course, once you carry out the act, the threat is no longer there. And the act itself may be unpleasant and distasteful. But in some instances, the victim will say, well, at least it's now happened and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Whereas with the mid-range, because he has an awareness of uh, impact on the facade, and may well want to be well regarded and not want to damage that facade. He is mindful of the ramifications, and therefore uh, he also has a slightly higher control over his ignited fury. And his fury tends to manifest as cold fury, silent treatments, Uh cold shoulder. And he'll issue the threat, but rarely rarely will carry it out. An upper mid-ranger might do, and would do so less so in the short term, because then it would be obvious who's done it. Oh. And be more likely to do it in the medium to long term. The greater will make extensive use of threat as well. And 
is also highly likely to carry it out. Again, not in the short term, probably not in the medium term, but to hit you months later when you least expect it and that your vigilance is reduced and will do so in a way whereby it's extremely difficult to tie it to the greater. Wow. So in terms of threats, lessers will make a threat, are likely to act on it in the immediacy, but thereafter will not. Mid-rangers tend to keep the threat in place most of the time, save an upper mid-ranger may act on it in the medium to long term. And a greater is likely to act upon a threat should they see that the outcome is advantageous to them. Greaters, we're no idiots. And if we see that it would be problematic, we will issue the threat, but keep it as it is and keep it in place. Uh, the, the lesser he explodes and he, he won't think about the ramifications, he'll just go ahead and do it. Wow. Great information. So it's quite simply, you should always take the threat seriously. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, I was, I was told I'm going to kill you if you do X, Y, Z. Well, in terms of uh, killing you, that uh, is worth separate consideration. The simple fact is that we, when we say, I want you dead, or I'm going to kill you, or I wish you were dead, the reality is, if you're dead, you're no longer providing us with fuel. And therefore, <laughs> a dead appliance is a rubbish appliance. And whilst we may issue it as a, a threat, and of course, saying that provocative remark will cause you to respond in a way which provides us with fuel, it's very rare for a narcissist to kill. Okay. Okay. It does happen. The lesser it be the explosive uh, act of domestic violence where the fury has been ignited and he lashes out. Uh, mid-range are very unlikely to. And a greater, they only do it in circumstances where they see that there is an absolute need. And that would be to take somebody out of the game, so to speak. Right. Causing too many problems. Yeah. And again, I've, I've written about this in considerable detail in an article called Why the Narcissist Wants You Dead. And the reality is most of the time we don't. So then how does sadism tie in with narcissism? We, we again, touched on this a little bit last time, but I want to dive a little deeper because I couldn't remember what it was that my ex had said, but he said when he was younger, and, and then it came to me, he used to give Alka-Seltzer to seagulls because there was something about it that would make them blow up. They were unable to digest this substance and it would make them literally blow up and he found amusement he got amusement out of that, which is really sick to me. Um, how does that play in? Like if they're willing to kill an animal, I'm surprised that they wouldn't be willing to kill a human. Yes. Well, the act, for example, there of harming an animal, if that was done whereby it was uh, just the individual you've mentioned and the, the bird, nobody else was around, an artist would derive very little fuel from that act. He might gain some thought fuel about thinking about how somebody he knows who's a bird lover would be upset when he tells them about what he's done. But in that moment, there is no reaction. We don't get fuel from animals. And so that kind of behavior is more attributable to antisocial behaviors rather than necessarily narcissistic ones. Okay. That's not to say that narcissists aren't sadistic. Indeed, the two will go together. Many narcissists are not. But uh, a true or pure sadist, one who derives pleasure from the uh, sadistic act and uh, often you find this in a, in a sexual sense what we do as narcissists is not done solely for pleasure because we don't um, experience pleasure or joy 
it's done for the purposes of gaining fuel. That is the primary reason that we do it. It's the emotional response of somebody else that mm. provides us with the validation. However, what you will find is that there are certain narcissists which have a sadistic streak. And in those instances, you see what it, is, what it tends to be linked to is the lesser doesn't realize because of the lower cognitive function that their behavior is actually hurting somebody, strange as it may seem. They have no cognitive empathy either. Whereas the upper echelons of the mid-range and greater, we know we're hurting you, but we don't care. And your reaction to being hurt provides us with fuel, but the, the knowledge that we are hurting you provides us with additional fuel. And that's where the sadistic element comes into it. So people describe it as taking enjoyment from it. And externally, I suppose that it will look that way because the manifestation of the fueling is that we will have that uh, twisted Smirk. look on our face, the, 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 the grin as mm -hmm. uh, you're being hurt. The fact that in certain instances, uh, some of our kind become uh, sexually aroused by somebody crying, for example. Um, but it's the knowledge that you're being hurt and that we are causing this that then provides us with extra potent fuel. That's interesting. It's just about the fuel. It is. Uh, a sadist behaves in a way purely for the sake of pleasure. So it's different. So again, it's a little more complex. Yes. And so I'm wondering what percentage or if there are any stats that you have on the number of people who are narcissists, but also have the overlapping possible disorders of like antisocial or bipolar personality disorder and such. I don't have any statistics. Um, it's certainly the case that many of these conditions uh, bleed into one another or certain ones uh, are comorbid and sit alongside one another. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you do find that, uh, do find that quite, quite often. I know I have a sadistic streak and I've met those of my kind that do and a lot that have not got that. They purely do it because they need the fuel and it's, uh, although it seems that the individual is getting off on the misery of somebody else, that is just the provision of the fuel. It's when there is a conscious effort to actively cause that misery and that pain, that's where the sadism comes in. And with many narcissists, it is a knee-jerk response, an instinctive way of behaving, so that there isn't the thought process of deliberately doing it to somebody. It seems deliberate, uh, but it's actually a knee-jerk and instinctive response. Whereas your upper echelon, mid-range and greater, there is consideration given to the action that is taken. There is planning and there is calculation. And that is where the sadism comes in uh, as a consequence of we gain the fuel, but knowing that we are hurting you and we're causing this provides us with extra potent fuel. Mm -hmm. And of course, it is also linked into the necessity of imposing punishment and revenge. I'm thinking about a situation where I had a tracker put on my car. I didn't even know it was there. And so that to me seemed like something that would have given the narcissist fuel in knowing that they had control over me. But I wasn't reacting to it because I didn't even know it was there. So what was that all about? Is that, that, is that just a control thing or how does that tie in? Okay. The placing of a tracker on your vehicle is done purely it is done essentially for the purposes of uh, control and gathering information to then build on further machinations for example 
for the purposes of, of hoovering you if the former relationship has ended or if you're still in the relationship with us, it then enables us to keep tabs on what you're doing or then accuse you of being at certain places uh, mm. and uh, provoke you for the provision of fuel. The knowledge that uh, we have you being tracked and you don't know about it would give a small amount of thought fuel on the basis that if you did know that we were doing this, you would be alarmed. So we get a little bit of thought fuel from that, but thought fuel doesn't last long and is uh, small in quantity. Uh, the fact that you are not reacting, of course, to this track, track because you don't know it's there means that no fuel is provided. So it's essentially done for the purposes of enabling us to exert control over you mm. by knowing where you are. So we can perhaps turn up at a certain place for the purposes of hoovering you <laughs> or just so that we know what you're up to because, of course, narcissists are paranoid and we need to control you and we need to know where you are. We need to ensure that our asset isn't messing around with somebody else, <laughs> that you are going where you said you were going. Which is interesting because at the same time, you're going other places and you're doing things behind the, the primary sources back. Absolutely, but we're entitled to. <laughs> right. That's the key. Exactly. And I, I know that it's hypocritical behavior. I recognize that. Mm -hmm. uh, I can admit that in the context of this discussion with you because uh, you're a stranger. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, I would never admit that to anybody uh, who was in my fuel matrix. Right. I recognize the hypocrisy of it. Um, but the fact is we are entitled to do as we wish. And when you're dealing with a lesser or mid-range narcissist who doesn't have that level of awareness, if they're challenged, if the narcissist says to you, you said you were going to such and such a place, but you haven't been there. And then if you turn around and say, well, wait a second, you went such and such a place and you told me that you were elsewhere. So you do just what I do. And what will happen is the narcissist adopts the twin lines of defense. The first thing is he will deny it. And it's an automatic response, even though he knows uh, that, or, or even though you are right in what you've said, mm -hmm. he will automatically reject it. He's programmed to reject it. it. The thought doesn't even cross his mind that you're right. And then even if you, and if you keep going, he will deny, 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 because that's the first line of defense. If somehow you manage to break through that by perhaps providing some evidence under his nose, he may snatch the phone out of your hand if you've got a video and smash it on the floor and go, what evidence have you got? Or, huh. well, in those circumstances, if you do present it, and usually a mid-range would respond in this way, the denial's not going to work. It's lost its credibility. So it falls back on the second line of defense, which is deflect, which is, why are you following me? I can't go anywhere without you interfering. You're always trying to control me. There's some projection. And then immediately it turns into blame shifting onto the victim. So if you get through the first line of defense, which is denial, then you come up against the second line of defense, which will be deflection, word mm -hmm. salad, projection. Yeah, uh, or crawling in, or getting into a little fetal position and, and crying and saying, leave me alone. <laughs> Um, Which is, and a mid-ranger will probably do that. Uh, that makes my skin crawl thinking about that. But uh, that's yeah. the type of cowardly, cowardly and weak thing that a mid-ranger would do, yes. That's what I experienced. Revenge. Yes. I want to ask you, is it a good idea, <laughs> if you feel like you've healed enough through your experience, should you go back and poke the narcissist or not? Okay. Many people in the immediate aftermath of being disengaged in the abuse that they've suffered their emotional thinking is running high and uh, they want revenge. They want the world to know what a utter bastard the narcissist has been. 
they want the narcissist to know what a bastard they've been. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the, the most obvious revenge is no contact. Starve as a fuel, protect yourself and move away. And doing that, you may well find as time has moved on, you've purged the emotional infection that we've caused. And through the passage of time and you've being distracted, that many of the wounds have healed and your emotional thinking is under control or under a greater control. So you are less minded to want to affect revenge. Some people still want to because of the hurt that they felt. Um, they have their own uh, narcissistic traits, themselves mm -hmm. pride. So you may have, for example, a super empath that is, uh, has gone supernova and wants to get back at the narcissist in that way. And there is also a desire to perhaps warn other people, sometimes warn the new primary source that the narcissist is with, or even just to derail that relationship mm. to irritate and annoy the narcissist. It very much depends on the type of individual that you are. And if you've struggled to bounce back, the last thing that you want to do is go anywhere near us because you'll get sucked back in. And either you'll, re you'll receive malign behaviors or we may even try and draw you back into a formal relationship. And if your emotional thinking takes over, even though people may shake their heads and say, after everything that I experienced, there's no way I would go back. Well, I've seen it happen repeatedly. People have said that and then they get sucked back in because their mm -hmm. emotional thinking takes over. Yeah, they think, they think, oh, well, we can just be friends now. Indeed. And salami slicing tactics means, yes, let's be friends. And then friends becomes a kiss. And then the kiss becomes going to bed the one time, the two times, the five times before you know it, it's boyfriend and girlfriend again. Mm -hmm. And you, then one day, five years later, you're disengaged again. And you think, how on earth did that all happen again? The reason <laughs> is you have an innate susceptibility to our kind and your emotional thinking took over and took you on the train straight back to Narktown. But if you're robust and you've built up your logic, and so you're better able to defend yourself, you may not get sucked in. So you could go closer to the narcissist again. And generally speaking, you are better served by moving on. But in certain instances, uh, you can achieve revenge. And there are two routes that are available. The first is what I call the ultimate revenge. And this is where you embark on a campaign which topples the uh, metaphorical narcissistic pillars that causes a complete crisis for the narcissist, where you attack his omnipotence, his status, etc. And that's all set out in my book, Revenge. Yes. And it's great. I'm glad you think yeah, so. Well, just be, I was laughing. I was like, that's funny. There were little things that you mentioned as, as ideas to, yes. to topple those pillars. And they, were, they seemed so simple that that would bring the narcissist down and, and anger them. That's interesting. Indeed, because... What, may, what is trivial to you, from your perspective, is not to the narcissist. Uh, the one thing that made me crack up laughing was sending a letter to their workplace yes. with a title that was way beneath what their title was, like attention administrative assistant or something like that. That's right. And um, that cracked me up because it's just, it's, it's silly and it almost seems like a joke. Something that somebody would laugh at and be like, that was a good one, but that would really, really piss them off. It would, that would wound and would attack the status pillar because first of all, you're doing it in writing and the written word is the least effective way that we get fuel. Mm -hmm. We rather see your facial expression, hear the tone, hear the words, see the look in your eyes, your body language. All of that provides much uh, greater quantities of fuel. Mm -hmm. The written word is far lower. So first of all, the act in itself is going to give very little fuel and by 
just putting the incorrect title and a an inferior one. There is no fuel in that. And what it does is it wounds us because of our uh, grandiosity, mm-hmm. uh, desire for status, that somebody can address us by the completely wrong title absolutely infuriates us. And again, from your perspective, well, that's a bit silly. You'd laugh yeah. it off. We don't because we have a completely different perspective. Easily wounded. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but it always has to be linked with not providing fuel because mm-hmm. if you provide fuel when you act in a way that you think will wound us, you're just going to provide us with challenge fuel, which means we will fight back at you to assert our superiority, but you're not wounding us. You're just giving us fuel and we want to provoke you to get more. Is this interesting idea behind like the narcissist coming off as this powerful person in so many ways, yet being so vulnerable beneath the surface? Is that why they tend to they veer towards risky behavior or having addictions? Because that's something that I did want to ask you about, because the narcissists I've been involved with in my life either had an alcohol problem or a drug problem or were just extremists with sports and and things that were really, really risky. There is, um, with some of our kind, because of the uh, arrogance and grandiosity, there is the delusion of being more capable than the narcissist actually is. And it's a little bit sort of, you think that's good? Hold my beer and watch me. Now, mm. some of our kind can can actually deliver. So you will find, because of the desire to win, the desire to be best, the desire to receive that fuel for being recognized as number one, the narcissist is driven and is successful. That tends to be greaters and higher mid-range. And some upper lessers are successful as well. Uh, but for different reasons. But of course, there are many narcissists that are not. And the uh, shift to addictions is as a consequence of two things. First, narcissists, we are all addicts. Primarily, we are addicted to fuel. But that also means that because there is that addictive element to our personality, there is a significant uh, likelihood of being addicted to alcohol, to street drugs, to prescription drugs. might be to shoplifting. It might be uh, addiction to exercise. Mm. and For the somatics. Yeah. And also because many of the behaviors that the narcissist engages in puts him in an environment where he's repeatedly doing that. So for a somatic, he wants to look good. So he goes to the gym a lot. So all of the admiring looks that he gets from people after being to the gym or at the gym provides him with fuel and therefore, he wants to keep going to the gym. There's also the reliance on, for example, drink arises in a situation where the narcissist may have a fuel crisis. And the impact of drinking or taking street drugs, for example, provides a similar sensation to fuel. And therefore, in certain instances, provides a substitute. So this is why you may have a narcissist and someone say, but he never seems to go anywhere. How is he getting his fuel? He just stays in drinking. And there's your answer. It's, a, it's appearing as a substitute for him. Interesting. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, but could also serve as fuel in addition to that if, if he shares those experiences with friends, uh, regularly going on Coke binges, for example. Absolutely. And of course, the risky behaviours are engaged in because of the lack of accountability, the fact of uh, being invulnerable, 
uh, regarding ourselves as impregnable. And if we're fueled and on a coke binge, then the combination of how the drug affects us, but also the fact that we're talking 10 to the dozen with other people who are responding and giving us fuel creates uh, uh, more, the greater sensation of power and impregnability, which then means take more. I can go further, better. Nothing's going to happen to me. I can drink all night and still get up in the morning because I'm the best. <laughs> yeah, until you turn about 45 years old. And, and then you're, ha you're having a clutcher in an alleyway behind the disco, <laughs> listening to say hello, wave goodbye. This is the, the last things that you hear as you shuffle off this mortal coil. I love that visual. That was great. Yeah, just stay you know, in that same fetal position in your bed for two days too. That's another option. Well, that will happen where there is a fuel crisis. So... Um, there will be a combination of the come down from the drink and the drugs, etc. And where fuel's not being provided, the narcissist will have a fuel crisis, which means that the construct is tumbling. The world feels like it's falling in on itself. The chasm is yawning. The creature is looking to draw the, uh, the narcissist into the abyss. And uh, the narcissist becomes paralyzed, doesn't want to go anywhere. The paranoia is rife. Wow. Uh, depression may set in, for example. You make me feel almost bad for narcissists sometimes. Well, that's what I, that's what I'm really here to do. This is a this is a, a, a subtle method of making you all feel sorry for us. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, everyone's probably like gasping listening to that right now. But well, I, it's I true. Uh, many will be saying, "Good, let them suffer." Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the thing. The behaviors are so hurtful and so terrible. But it really just goes back to being a wounded wounded person you know and so it at is, some point yes it's it, it's necessity and people often fail to understand and that's because they don't have the same perspective as to why do you always feel the need to hurt people and yeah. the hurt is actually collateral uh, unless as i explained earlier on the, the, the sadistic streak it's the need to gain fuel. If that means causing that person to think that we are wonderful, then that is what we'll do. But in certain instances, that person's positive fuel is no good to us anymore. So therefore we have to do something to provoke negative fuel instead. And mm. so that's why they're hurt, or that's why they're upset or made angry. The outcome that we look for is the fuel. And how you feel about it is irrelevant to us, because of course we don't care. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I ask you one more question? Do you Not have a little all. more time? Okay. Plenty of time. Can two narcissists be successful in a relationship with themselves? It seems like they're two peas in a pod. They, they belong together. As ever, it depends on uh, the school of narcissists that you have. So let's take, for example, if you have two lesser narcissists who end up in a uh, romantic liaison, it's entirely uh, possible that that can happen because of course they don't know what they are and they will not recognize what the other party is. And uh, in those circumstances, the, uh, let's say narcissist A is of course looking to seduce. So they will uh, adopt that seductive approach to narcissist B. Now to narcissist B, that behavior look, is fuel. And so narcissist B thinks, oh, good, I'm being fueled. Mm. I'll try and seduce narcissist A, of course, not knowing that narcissist. And so what happens to begin with, they can actually end up in a situation whereby two lesser narcissists can readily seduce one another. 
the difficulty that they have is that it won't last for long because after a short period of time, they will perceive behavior of the other as a criticism and be wounded. Mm. And then they, the reaction that is provided when they lose their temper is not the one that they would ordinarily require because if they lashed out at an empath, the empath's more likely to go, okay, I'm sorry, let's sort this out. Whereas the narcissist will be, what are you shouting at me for? And we'll see it as challenge fuel and we'll try and provoke it all the more. <laughs> so there'll be a very tempestuous, violent relationship between the two. Mm. And therefore, they will, they're quite easily able to seduce one another, but they will reach devaluation very quickly because the positive fuel will not satisfy them. So they will instinctively look to devalue to draw out the negative fuel. And then they will disengage from one another quickly because, again, the fuel that's being provided is not sufficient for them. And uh, so they can come together, but it will be But it's going to be bad. Yeah. Turbulent and short-lived. Now, have you, ever, have you ever seen the movie The War of the Roses? I have, yes, I have. <laughs> a yes. visual came of them like swinging on the chandelier going at yes. it. Yes, and yeah. uh, I remember at the time, I think they were both lying on the floor dying and Michael Douglas put his hand out to try and take take his wife's hand and she shrugged it away, didn't she? Yeah. It's a sort of la last act of defiance. And again, you see, uh, you might have an instance where you have a mid-range and a, a lesser narcissist come together and their uh, romantic liaison is likely to last longer because the mid-ranger will, when attacked by the lesser, will automatically go to a pity play and rope third parties in and say, I don't understand why he's being so horrible to me. Mm. And that reaction of he's being horrible to me and getting upset about it, even though it's a, a false upset and only being upset for oneself, is fuel to the lesser. So they actually could have a romantic relationship that would last for a longer period of time than if you were to get two lessers together. You also will have situations whereby a greater recognizing another narcissist will not choose a lesser as an intimate partner primary source. There's no point because it right. won't work and the greater can easily go and find an empath. Similarly, they won't go and find uh, a mid-range narcissist because, again, they recognize that's a mid-ranger and they think, well, what's the point? They might take a mid-range or a lesser narcissist as an intimate partner secondary source for a period of time but not as a primary source. But you can have two graters who will get together. Mm. And that's when there is significant trouble because they will work in tandem together because their fuel matrices will be so extensive and they will provide fuel to one another, but they will recognize that the, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And in those circumstances, you will have situations whereby they accept that they have affairs, but recognize that that's part of their mm. dynamic. And they recognize that the residual benefits that they get from one another are so significant, and the facade to the outside world of the golden couple is so powerful that it's a price worth paying to both engage in affairs and allow the other person to engage in affairs. Wow. Because they recognize that what they've got is so effective 
that neither will let that go. So they're not worried about the narcissist going off with somebody else in those circumstances. That's fascinating. I've actually read about certain celebrities who are in relationships like that where, you know, in the media just shows that they're this happy couple for many, many years, but, and they both cheat on each other, but they're okay with that. That's cool. That's where you'll have two greats. A good example of that is in House of Cards. Oh, yes. Jack Underwood and his wife. Oh, yes. That's two greaters working together. And the... uh, political expediency that's achieved the rise to power is what it is all about. And obviously the fuel and the status that comes with all of that means that everything else that goes in and around their relationship mm-hmm. is perfectly permissible to achieve. They're still wounding on both sides. I love the way they portray that. That's one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. Like they both just deal with it and keep going. Well, of course they have a lid on their ignited fury and because of knowing what they are and having a higher cognitive function and also the uh, recognition of the residual benefits, there will be an instinctive response to want to lash out and draw fuel from the other half. But uh, other than when there might be a frenzied situation where control has been completely lost, and that might be where one of the greaters has has done something uh, exposing the other in some way or a huge act of treachery, Mm -hmm. uh, ordinarily... Although there is the spark and the greater wants to lash out, the control kicks in and they recognize that they have far more to lose. Mm. And so this, this is why uh, in certain instances where you will get major politicians who are accused of infidelity, the wife stands by them. The wife knows full well what has gone on and the husband will say nothing ever happened. She knows that it's happened, mm-hmm. but she also gains from the continuation of the union. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she may well be doing the very same thing right. and having affairs, but nobody, uh, but she may be less in the spotlight. Her activities are greater, maybe in a more uh, subtle and uh, in the shadows way. And it's not mm-hmm. as prominent. She may operate in an industry, for example, which isn't uh, under such scrutiny as a politician would be or a pop star, for example. Yeah. I love too on that show, the competition factor. They're always kind of competing with one another, too. There's these, that constant Absolutely. power play. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an innate element. Uh, we always regard everybody else as the competition. And even where it's our spouse, they are the competition. Uh, very much so uh, if a normal or an empath. And even if, if it was the situation of two graters, there would still be that competition. Don't you ever want a normal relationship, HG? I don't, I don't know what one is. <laughs> I mean, because I think about this and I'm like, oh, that's too much work. I can't. I can't do it. You know? I well, just... it seems too much work to you, Michelle, because obviously you're entirely different. And uh, the lesser and mid-range of our kind at times, they find it exhausting and they find it difficult to maintain it. But the greater of us, this is all I've ever known. And I'm highly effective at what I do. So as a consequence, when you say to me, do I want a normal relationship? I hear people talk about what is a normal relationship and I understand the factors that go into it, but I don't, I've never felt a normal relationship. I don't understand it at that level. And therefore I'm incapable of having that. And that doesn't bum you out at all? No, because I don't have any concept of regret. I'm highly effective as I am. Indeed, on the contrary, I often see those that talk about uh, having uh, feeling love and uh, having compassion and empathy. I see the misery that they end up in as a consequence of those traits. Mm. And I thank my own personal God that I am what I am. And I don't uh, 
find myself experiencing those. And of course, I met with people saying, yes, it will bring misery, but at the same time, it brings uh, joy. Joy, and, and it's worth it. Right. And when I hear people talk about all of that, and I can see how they look, I am jealous of that, because I'm a jealous person. That's what I am. But I'm jealous in that moment. But ultimately, logic, that's my emotional reaction, you see. Even I have emotional thinking. Mm-hmm. But then logic ticks in and tells me, yes, but if you were able to feel all of those things, think of all of the hindrances that you would have. Think mm. of all the downsides that were potentially there. Uh, the millstones around your neck. Uh, I have to, in order to survive and exist, always be moving forward. And that's the way I am designed. Wow. I love the combination of vulnerability in admitting that that makes you jealous for a moment, mm-hmm. but then also the sheer logic and being totally okay with your path. And it almost sounds appealing. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to get hurt. Like that might be, I wish in a way I didn't have all of the heart and the heart on the sleeve type stuff that I yes. experience because it is painful. <laughs> it, indeed. It is often said to me, uh, I wish I could be like you, HG, at times. And, and just shut it off. Yeah. But that's only when it comes to people wanting to stop the hurt. Right. Exactly. No. They don't want all, they don't want everything else that goes with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to light things on fire. Although when I was a kid, I did some playing around with matches and such, but <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's in there really. It's in there. We'll have to get together and have a good burn up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we'll we'll make it off the grid so nobody gets hurt. That's that'll That's appeal fine. to the end path and me. Nobody gets hurt. Okay. Um, everybody out there listening, I'm sure you enjoyed this uh, deeper conversation with HG. We're starting to have a little rapport, a little fun going on here. Go to his website, please, narcsite.com, and go to amazon.com and pick up his books. There are tons of them. He's not only a prolific arsonist, but also a prolific writer. And uh, I dig that about you, HG. And I'm so glad that you took time to come back on and, and chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.